Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, since Ascension Sunday, we have been looking together at the book of Acts, and this morning uh, we're going to wrap that short series up by looking at the story of the Roman centurion Cornelius and the Apostle Peter and these visions uh, that they both had uh, from Acts 10. So I'm going to read that for us, and you can follow along in the order of worship where it's printed or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Acts 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come into him and say, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day... As they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, The men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by an holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we just pray again what we have already asked you together, and that is that you would help us to taste and see that you are good. That that these words that we just sang together, that we're turning unfilled to you again, that we would feel the truth of those words, and that you'd be happy to use this story that we have just read and heard together to show us Jesus' grace to us more clearly and change us by it. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, after I uh, graduated from college, um, way back in the summer of 94, 
Um, my short-term plan uh, was just to move into an apartment with a couple of friends and spend a few years not doing anything school-related, just kind of living life. Um, so after I graduated, I went back home to Baltimore for a couple of weeks. I spent some time with my parents, and then I packed up my stuff and came back to Chicago. I got back here uh, in early June of 94. Now, in order for that short-term plan to work, of course, I needed to get a job, right? Rent and groceries don't grow on trees. And um, what I wanted really was just kind of any job, any job that would pay the bills and preferably a job that I didn't have to think about when I wasn't there, when I wasn't working it. So after I got back, I spent a week or so hitting the pavement, looking for that kind of work, and I didn't really find anything. And then I hit this really big roadblock. Um, 1994 happened to be a World Cup year. Um, that is the most important and beautiful sporting event on the planet, in case you don't know what it is, and I am a big fan. And it is a month-long tournament that started in mid-June. <laughs> so for the next month or so, I have to admit that my job search was a little bit dicey. Uh, my roommates would come home uh, at the end of the day. They would find me in the apartment watching the end of a game, and they would say, Hey, Aaron, did you find a job today? And I would say something like, no, but Colombia-Romania was astounding. One of the best games I've ever seen. So finally, Brazil won the final in mid-July, and I was desperate for a job. So I started doing like we do in those days. I read the classified section, um, the job section of the newspaper, and I came across this job that looked pretty promising, warehouse inventory management warehouse inventory management, make X number of dollars a month. I don't remember how much it was, but it was enough to pay the bills, and it seemed like it was exactly the kind of job that I was looking for. So I called, and they asked me to come in for an interview, and I did, uh, out by O'Hare. And I showed up at 9 in the morning, and I thought it was weird. There were 10 other guys there um, for an interview, which I thought, okay, that's my competition for this job. Uh, they corralled us all into this one room that had 10 other guys in it who were all employees of this company. And they told us that they had learned that the best way to interview for this job was to do an on-the-job interview. So that's what we were going to do. So I got paired up with one of the employees who quickly shuffled me outside to his car. It felt a little weird, a little bit strange. Um, but I didn't have anything else to do that day. So I thought, all right, I'll, I'll get in the car with this guy. And he said, we're going to drive to the job site. Okay, so we drove off of the parking lot, and after we were out of the parking lot, he told me, what we're going to do now is we're going to drive to the far south suburbs, and we are going to sell first aid kits door to door at restaurants and bars and, you know, shopping malls and convenience stores. We were going to do door to door sales. That was the job. So I guess it was kind of an interview. <laughs> And I guess uh, that the warehouse inventory we were managing was found in the trunk of his car where all of the first aid kits were stashed. And I have to tell the truth, even though I knew right away that I wasn't going to do this job, <laughs> I had a lot of fun that day. I met a lot of great people. But the fun that I had that day did not change the essential fact that that morning I thought I was head headed to one thing, and it turned out to be another thing altogether. And that is, I think, how Acts 10 works. The story of Peter and Cornelius, it's the longest single narrative in the book of Acts. We only read about a third of it. 
And on the surface of things, it, it looks to be like this incredible and unlikely story of the conversion of Cornelius, this Roman pagan centurion, his conversion to Christianity. And that definitely happens. But I think the main force of this story in the life of the early church and in our lives is really about something else altogether. It is about the conversion of the Apostle Peter. He changes in this story. He goes from being a man who is bound by racial and religious intolerance to a man who can come to the place where he says, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. So I think there's something in this story for all of us, no matter where we find ourselves this morning. So it starts in Caesarea. This is an important harbor town on the Mediterranean Sea. It was built by Herod the Great, and all of the land and sea trade was forced through Caesarea. So, of course, the Roman Empire could get their hands on the revenue from all of the taxes and the tariffs that were imposed there. It was this major import point for grain from Egypt. The empire was completely dependent on this grain during harvest time. So it was an important city, and it shouldn't be any surprise that there was a garrison stationed in the city because you didn't want to lose control of a place like this. The Italian cohort would have been made up of about 600 soldiers in this town, and this guy Cornelius would have been in charge of 100 of them. No matter where they lived in the empire, even in far-flung places like Caesarea, centurions represented the power of Rome. They could snap their fingers and they could have a man flogged or killed. They could take away his livelihood and his work. They could destroy his family if they wanted to. The centurions were often brutal, and that is how Rome liked them to be. But Cornelius is very much against type. Luke says that he is devout and that he feared God, that he was generous with his money, and that he was a man of prayer. That is almost the most, it is probably the most unlikely description of a Roman centurion that you will ever come across in ancient literature. It is obvious that Cornelius was fed up with something. It is obvious that he was looking for something substantial that he knew that he did not yet have in his hands. And he had this deep respect for God's people. And most importantly, he had a deep respect for their God. He saw something in this people's faith that had substance that he could not find in the idol cults of Rome. And instead of these capricious, mercurial gods that didn't seem to care really a whole lot for what human, happened to human beings, he is compelled by this God and drawn to this God who binds himself to a people in love even when it doesn't make much sense for him to do it. My guess is that there may be some of us here this morning who are here for similar reasons. We have started to get fed up and we are looking for something substantial that we know that we don't have. Maybe that's what have led, what has led some of us to Christianity, or maybe you haven't come that far, but you're here and you're wondering about it. Right? Our culture doesn't offer up a, a pantheon of, of capricious, careless gods to worship in the same way that Rome did, but I think if we're being honest, a little reflection will lead us to reveal what our culture does offer. What we are given to offer our allegiance to, and 
if we're honest, will admit that they are just as weightless and lead to just as many dead ends. Things like the commodification of every last part of our lives. Or our obsession with status and celebrity and appearance and power. The allure of sexual satisfaction, no matter who around us, it hurts. The ever-present and often rewarded temptation to become lost in our work. Cynical detachment from everything and everyone. An obsession with being entertained. Addictions. Right? The list could go on and on and on. And these things are as empty for us as they are as corrosive to us being genuinely human beings. And what Cornelius suspected was that there had to be something more out there, something real, something that would make him more fully human, like he was created to be, and not less so. So he's out there looking for it, and he is trying to live it even before he knows really what it is. And he's praying for it. And one day he's out there praying and he gets this vision. And in his terror, he hears God say to him, send some men to this town called Joppa, 30 miles away, and and find a guy named Simon Peter and ask those guys to bring Simon Peter back. Now, Cornelius doesn't know who Simon Peter is, doesn't even know why this vision is happening, but he does it anyway. So these guys are making their way to find Peter, and he, Peter, is on the roof of a house where he's staying, and he is also praying, and he's hungry, Luke tells us, and so some people go off to fix him something to eat, and he has his own really strange vision. The heavens opened, and Luke says something like a great sheet descended in front of him. And when it finally drops down in front of him, it's filled with all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds. And while he is looking at that load of animals squirming around in front of him, he hears this voice. And the voice says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, this, this is horrific for Peter. And it's horrific, and we know that it is because he refuses the command. He says, by no means, Lord, I have never ever eaten anything common or unclean. Right, so now we know that at least some of the things that he is seeing in that vision, at least some of those animals are animals that would have been considered unclean according to the Jewish law and therefore off limits to Peter. So maybe, maybe the first time he refused because he thought maybe God was testing him. I don't know. But I do know that the next words that Peter hears would have been incredibly confusing and wildly unsettling to him. He hears this voice say, what God has made clean, do not call common. Same scene plays out two more times. Two more times Peter refuses the request. And two more times he hears the voice, what God has made clean, do not call common. Luke tells us that Peter is perplexed. He starts trying to figure out what in the world does this mean? So it's worth stopping for a second and trying to figure that out ourselves. Because I think this is where the story looks to be headed in one direction and then zags into another direction altogether. So first, there's the stuff with the food. 
Peter had lived his whole life following the Jewish dietary laws, and he did it for the same reason everyone else who was a member of God's people did it, because that's what God told them to do. It was one of the signs that set these people apart as different from the other nations surrounding them. But now, now it looks like God is somehow saying to Peter that something has happened, something has come that has made those laws obsolete and unnecessary. Now, Peter had heard Jesus teach about this. We heard about it in the gospel lesson, right? He was in that room after Jesus told the parable, after he said nothing that goes into someone can defile him. He was in that room and they said, what does that mean, Jesus? And Jesus said, it's what comes out of us that defiles us. And Mark says, by this, Jesus was declaring all foods clean. But maybe it was just too confusing for Peter and he just put it to the side with all those other things that Jesus said that were really hard to understand. But here it is again for the second and the third and the fourth time at least in his life that he hears the same thing. So something with the food is going on. But that is really just the entry point. Because over time all kinds of traditions developed and all kinds of traditions were erected around the food and purity laws in the Old Testament. And at first, I think those human traditions were probably there just to make it easier to keep the law. But as human traditions often do, they started to go bad. And over time, they became a litmus test. They were a litmus test to see who was really spiritual or who was really an insider, or who were really the good guys. And in that way, they became ways of excluding people. And then, as things that exclude often do, they became sledgehammers. They didn't just exclude people, they also became the fuel for intolerance and bigotry and racism. Some of God's people started throwing around names for Gentiles and telling awful stories about them. If I repeated them, we would all blush in shame. Now, I'm not saying that Peter was like that. There's absolutely no evidence that he ever did anything like that. But that is the world that he swam around in. And it created a huge, huge blind spot when it came to thinking about people like Cornelius hearing the good news and becoming Christians. I mean, sure, Peter wanted guys like Cornelius to become Christians. But he assumed that if someone like Cornelius, some pagan Roman centurion, was going to become a Christian, then first he would have to become like Peter. He would have to be like an insider first before he could meet Jesus. So what is it going to take? You know, what would it take to get Peter to start to see people differently and to start to live with people differently and to start to live and act like Jesus did? Jesus, who invited the outsiders and the unclean and the scandalous into the very center of everything. Well, I guess it would take a really strange and shocking vision. Because that's what Peter got. And this is where we realize that this vision was about food on the surface of things. But in the end, it was about something infinitely more important than food. It was about people. And church, we swim around 
in a world too. And no matter how intelligent and educated or savvy and street street smart we are, hopefully we also have enough humility to show some wisdom and say that we have blind spots when it comes to other people too. And that has all kinds of effects. We, right, we. And I mean whichever we we imagine ourselves to be a part of are often tempted to look down on those who are other. We have our own litmus tests. We have our own sledgehammers. And we, the insiders, look down on the outsiders. And church, that happens in just about every version of we that you can imagine. In race, in education, in socioeconomic status, in our politics, in our views of justice, in our theology, in our brand of being Christian, even in the stuff that we do with our free time. And all of this has the damaging effect of exclusion. So what would it take? <laughs> right? What would it take to get a people like us to start to see people differently and live with people differently and to start to live and act like Jesus did and to invite the outsiders and the unclean and the scandalous right into the center of things where they can meet Jesus and be forgiven by him and be changed by him just like we have? Well, that is what Acts 10 is about. It is here for us. And I love how this story unfolds. Peter is up on the roof. He's trying to figure out what in the world this vision meant. And these three men from Cornelius roll up to the front gate of the house. While he is pondering it, Luke says, the Holy Spirit comes to Peter and says, Peter, listen, there's three guys. They're here looking for you. You should get up. You should go down to them and accompany them without hesitation because I've sent them. Peter doesn't know it yet, but he is about to find out the deep, deep truth of that vision. The gate swings open, and Peter realizes that he is not looking at three guys like him popping over for a visit. They do not look like him. They do not talk like him. And they definitely don't eat like him. And it is not a fluke. They're not lost and asking for directions. They're not coming over to borrow a cup of sugar. They know it, and Peter knows it. The four of them are standing there face to face by divine appointment. They have been swept up into a story that they did not construct themselves. And it is probably a little strange for them, a little weird for all of them, but Peter, for his part, doesn't hesitate. He says, I, I know I'm the one you're looking for. Why are you here? And they explain to him about Cornelius the Roman, Cornelius the centurion, Cornelius this pagan who is searching for something more. And they tell him about this vision that Cornelius has had. And they say, Peter, you're supposed to come back with us because Cornelius wants to hear what you have to say. Whatever it is, he wants to hear it. And, and the next line in the story it might just be my favorite in the whole thing. <laughs> Peter invited them in to be his guests. <laughs> he invited them in to be his guests. He has come face to face, the insider, 
with the outsider. And he asked them in. You must be tired. It's been a long journey. Please sleep here. Sleep in this place and eat with us. And tomorrow I'll go back with you. He invited them in to be his guests. Peter acts like Jesus. He invites the outsider in. And you know what? Peter caught no end of grief for this. You can read about it later this afternoon at the beginning of Acts 11. There's people in the Jerusalem church who cannot understand how he could have possibly done this. They say, we do not know how it is that you could eat with people like that. We have no idea how you could have gone into someone's house. A guy like that? How did you do this, Peter? That moment at the gate where they're standing and staring at each other, nobody knows it at that time, but that is the beginning. It is, it is the beginning of this big and desperately important moment in the common life of the early Christians. It begins this moment where they're going to have to ask themselves, how will we be Christian? Will we close ranks? Or will we follow after Jesus and make space in our homes and at our tables and in our lives for the other to hear the good news of Jesus? And we didn't, we didn't read this part of the story, but I love how Peter talks about it when he finally gets to Cornelius' house. He says, you know I'm not supposed to be here. <laughs> I'm not supposed to visit with a guy like you. I'm not supposed to associate with a guy like you because you're other. But God has shown me something. Peter says, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Peter doesn't care how scandalous it will seem. He does not care how misunderstood he will be. And church, my prayer for us is that God would make us see whatever we need to see and that he would use whatever he needs to use in our lives to continue to grow us as individuals and as families and as small groups and as a church to continue to grow us into a people who make space in our lives and in our church and in our homes and at our tables and in our neighborhoods all across the city, who make space for the outsider and the other to experience and to hear and to be changed by the grace of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, I just pray that, that you would use whatever means that you have available to show us this thing that you showed to Peter, to show us our blind spots and to push us out of them. Father, help us to see whoever it is we need to see descending on that sheet in front of us and help us to hear that voice like Peter did so that we could be like Jesus was and invite the outsider and the scandalous and the unclean into the very center of things. Do this, Father, for our good, and do this for the good of the broken world around us. And we pray it in the name of Christ. Amen.